This is the Erasing Shame Podcast, Season 5. Diverse Perspectives Discussing What Matters. Welcome to the Erasing Shame Podcast, Season 5. Diverse Perspectives Discussing What Matters. And on today's episode, given that it's May, both AAPI Heritage uh, Appreciation Month and Mental Health Awareness Month, uh, we will be dis- discussing uh, as a panel our personal experiences around journeys of being AAPI individuals, as well as our experiences in our personal pursuit of mental health and how those two areas intersect. Uh, my name is George Zhang, and I'm joined by my lovely co-hosts, Leah Abraham and Hannah Lee Sandoval. And uh, given today's um, conversation and just the sensitivity of it, we do want to provide a little bit of a trigger warning um, that as we process through our experiences, we want to be aware that uh, many of our listeners have um, some of their own uh, traumas that they may still be processing through um, or that they haven't processed through yet. And this episode may bring up some things for you, Um, but we want you to be aware Um, just so that if you do need to skip out on this episode, um, feel free to. But uh, as you process through with us, we do hope that uh, this can provide some insight into your own experiences as well. Um, And at the end of the episode, we'll make sure to help guide you and lead you into uh, any next steps that you might need to take um, to continue to pursue your own mental health and caring for it. Um, But welcome uh, to... Uh, erasing shame. So today, uh, with this conversation, uh, we kind of wanted just to to work through uh, what it's been like for us as Asian American um, uh, individuals, and and just looking at our mental health. And I think it really helps to kind of just start with uh, who we are as individuals and and what our um, story kind of looks like. And so um, maybe we don't need to go like way back to the beginning of our lives, but um, (laughs) can we kind of talk a little bit about what, uh, you know, growing up as an Asian American in our communities was like, and, and, you know, what were some of those experiences that you felt like were um, really shaping your identity and shaping how you saw the world? Does anyone want to go first? <laughs> Do you want to go first, Hannah? Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah I'll bite the bullet. Um, mm. So I, I shared in another uh, earlier episode that I grew up kind of in a very, um, like Monday through Friday, going to a, a largely, you know, Caucasian middle class Christian school. And then Friday through Sunday, being around other Korean immigrant families and Korean Americans through church. And um, that made it difficult, actually, initially, to have maybe a coherent sense of identity because I had to constantly code switch. And so Monday through Friday, I had to be somebody where I felt this pressure to be somebody a certain way to mm. survive. And, um, you know, I was one of the few Asians in my class wherever I went um, and trying to figure out who I was in a, a majority white context and um, and quite conservative and you know evangelical Christian, and then on the weekends I was still at church for the most part, but surrounded by Korean American kids who were very different from me for the most part, 
And so is this like constant sense of uh, anxiety and shame and mm. insecurity that I felt like I was having to like constantly ride the waves of that. Um, and then later on, I learned about the concept of code switching and I was like, oh, so I'm not being like a two-faced hypocrite and wearing masks and just faking to everybody. Because, you know, by the time you're in like your teen years, most young people are really self-aware and very painfully self-conscious already. Mm. But it was like the set of rules kept changing wherever I went and it was just tiring to keep up with. So I think by the time I was in college, I was just like, I'm kind of done having so many different selves because it was just crazy making. And now I kind of just feel like I'm this crazy person. I don't really know who I am. Um, but that's when I was introduced to therapy, you know, and um, mm. completely changed my journey. And then studying Asian American studies as a major and learning history and um, having worlds opened up to me um, that, you know, introduced the concept of Asian American for the first time as well. That was all happening for me in my like late teens, early twenties. Um, but yeah, it's been a a very like up and down roller coaster of a journey. Very very stressful. Um, but I'm so grateful for um, the places I've been and the people I've met along the way that have helped shape who I am. It's not been easy for sure. Mm. And I, you know. I really appreciate you sharing that. Um, for our listeners, can you explain a little bit more what code switching is and uh, oh, how that? The worst person. <laughs> how can I define that? Yeah. I mean, just this idea of like, um, you need to act one way in one setting with one group of people, and then you have to switch, right? Like the code or the rule, the rule book, the unspoken social norms and expectations, right? Um, so then, for example, uh, from even my intonation and the way I like physically carried myself, um, my uh, Korean friends would say, sometimes you act and look so white. And I didn't know what that meant. Mm. Um, but they would be like, no, like you literally pronounce your words differently and you carry your, your physical self smaller. You know, you take up less space um, and then you seem really hesitant to speak up. Um, and then when I was around non-Asian or non-Korean, then they'd be like, oh, you're so outspoken for an Asian. I got like opposite feedback. So just realizing, okay, so this idea of code switching of um, there's no one normal way to be, but, but the norms or the, the bar keeps changing wherever you are. And you kind of have to like adjust to fit in, um, but, it, but it's okay. And it's appropriate to do so. Like, we wouldn't act the same way at a funeral as we would at a bar, right? Because the expectations and what's happening is different. So it's sort mm. of that idea. That's how I understand it, if anybody else wants to speak into it. Yeah. I think I, I think that was great. Um, you know, I, I think uh, for myself, there is this process in which um, growing up, Hmong, so Hmong people, um, are a Southeast Asian refugee immigrant group. Um, and so we had fought in what is known now as the secret war, um, which in, in many you know, senses continues to perpetuate trauma that we can't uh, really process through or talk about because the name of the war was the secret war. So who, who's going to know about it? And, you know, what, what are they going to care about it? But um, in, in the process of, of uh, being torn from our, our, our homelands and 
um, then, you know, placed in America, um, my family uh, ended up in Minnesota, as did many Hmong families. Um, and the question is, why would you go from from Thailand and Laos to the frozen tundra? Well, we don't know. We we didn't get to choose. That's where the the, the church families chose to sponsor us from. <laughs> so we ended up in in the frozen tundra around tons of Norwegians and Swedes and. <laughs> um, uh, but there is there's this experience as as a Hmong person where uh, we feared assimilation so much, um, and then the first gen feared assimilation so much, and so it's not as um, as clean as I think other Asian immigrating situations, right? Where you're coming here for the American dream, and um, you know families already have uh, you know certain jobs that they're looking for when they're coming um, to the States and immigrating, right? Um, for us, we were, um, uh, yeah, very agricultural. Uh, you know, many of the the, the jobs that are, are offered to uh, these refugee groups are um, blue collar, right? Um, and, and, you know, factories, whatnot. And so um, I think what, what I struggled with growing up in being Asian American was um, I had to really wrestle through the intergenerational changes of uh, not being able to be Hmong at school, um, but also having parents who were good at, good enough at, Eng at English that they were able to just speak with us um, in English at home as well. And mm -hmm. so it was like, it was almost like a third culture kid experience for me. Um, and, and for those of you guys who, who are listening, who uh, don't know what third culture kids are, they're essentially um, individuals who have a, a home cultural experience, but are uh, implanted into a completely separate um, cultural experience. And they then end up living, um, in an in-between space of having to experience both of those cultures while feeling like an outsider all the time from both cultures. Mm -hmm. um, so that's kind of what my experience was like. Um, and there's so much more tied to as well as like my church experience and how my non-Christian friends viewed me growing up because I was throwing away our traditional religion and taking up a white person's religion. And so I was becoming less and less Hmong through my faith and a number of those other stories. But um, yeah, just a quick snippet um, okay. tangent, but that code switching is, is, is really intriguing to me as far as what my personal experience was like trying to navigate these spaces. Wow, thanks for sharing that. Um, for me, I don't have necessarily the stereotypical story. Um, as an Indian American, I, while I grew, was born in um, the States, I grew up in India. Um, we moved because my parents wanted my brother and I growing up knowing our heritage and our culture and our language. Um, and then we ended up, I ended up moving back to the States when I was 13 years old. Um, and so the identity crisis of it all was very 
like I used to have my normal preteen angst of like, who am I when I was in India, which is like, mm. I, I would say fairly, um, it's what you'd expect really. Um, but I think the identity crisis really, I think switched gears when I first moved to the States of, um, cause I didn't really fit in with the Indian American group kids in the States cause their experience of being third culture kids. And I was mm-hmm. like, Oh, it's, I can't, I, I didn't just fit there, but I, so it was really, it took me, I think belonging was a huge, mm-hmm. um, a huge thing. Um, but I, but I think a lot of the stereotypes, um, Indian kids or, um, get in terms of, um, identity, like, your worth is based on your performance. Your worth is based on if you are able to excel in school and be competitive. Um, and what I'm learning and unearthing these days is that a lot of that is tied back to um, our a lot of our generations before our parents and grandparents still came out where just survival was huge, right? Um, mm-hmm. That survival mentality of do we have enough for the next generation. And then each generation as it passes, it's not only that you are making enough to survive, but you're making enough. So you will never know the hunger our forefathers of faith. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, which comes out like, it's a very weird mentality that keeps being pushed on generation after generation that I think just, it just, yeah, it, I think it really affects people's health and the way they see and view life and um, think about wholeness. Um, and so I definitely, I, I'm now in, like I'm 27 and I'm finally asking the question of like, well, do I have a, do I have a learning disability that I never knew of? Cause I remember trying really hard um, mm. to get the best grades as I could, but just not making the best grades. And it wasn't because I wasn't trying, but the feedback I'd get from, either family or like my teachers was that like we see your potential and you're not you're just not living up to it mm. and so growing up and just education was really hard because I loved learning but it, I wasn't performing well and so it was like school spaces stress me out now because I that the whole narrative of like oh you're not good enough um, you're not mm. enough like keeps replaying for me um, but now that of the work that I'm doing right now of trying to figure out just why, why am I the way I am, but also like, where do I come from and why is my people the way they are? I'm beginning to like make those connections of like, Oh, this is what, Oh oh no, this is why we do that thing. Um, And so I think like my identity journey, I think is still being formed in that sense. And I'm still, I'm still in that journey of connecting those dots and naming those things I've been trying to figure out all my life. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's so powerful. And Leah, um, I'm right there with you. Um, I, I don't think our identities are static, right? Like we can have um, these complex identities and Sometimes I feel like once you figure one thing out, something else has been brewing and developing and Mm. this constant process of kind of checking in and to be like, well, who am I today? It's different from last week or last month or last year, like the pandemic in the past year, everybody has become a different person, you know? 
Um, and so this, uh, this idea of identity is often, um, it, it feels elusive, right? Like, oh, I want to have a solid sense of identity. Well, for some people that may never come because you're, it's more about the process of becoming, right? Mm. Kind of like about rather than being woke, we are awakening or waking. Um, mm. I feel like identity, I feel more comfortable when I look at my processes. Like this is a lifelong process. Um, and maybe I would actually need to be concerned if I figured out everything about who I was. And I was like, I'm good. No more therapy mm. ever again. <laughs> I'm very comfortable with who I am. I like to see it as, you know, I'm a, I'm a, a living organism. You know, I'm always changing. So I, I hope that my identity will continue to grow. Um, so yeah, you're not alone in that sense of I'm still figuring it out. Yeah. 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 And Leah, I'm I'm so sorry to to hear, you know, your experience of of having that that horrible, you know, just feeling of I'm not enough because I'm not performing mm-hmm. in school, right? Mm-hmm. And and you know, our society like puts such a big emphasis on that. Um and the the frustrating thing is until we become adults and recognize how messed up the system is, right? mm-hmm. our, our childhood identities are just shaped by these very white normative, you know, proper status quo types of behaviors that we have to, ex, you know, um, exude. And if we don't, if we're not meeting those standards, then apparently we're not right and we're not fit mm-hmm. for Mm-hmm. um society or fit for you know the top of the class and um it's so wrong and you know I think I, I have a very similar experience of um not finding out that I had ADHD until I was 26 <laughs> mm-hmm. and and like you know for you know a Hmong student growing up like one like the assumption is because we're, we're refugees or because we're immigrants, because we're foreigners, um, our learning issues aren't mental health issues, but they're um, mm. language issues, right? Um, or they're, they're cultural issues. It's, mm. it's not a mental health space. It's, oh, they just, they're new. They don't get it. Um, and, and I wonder how much of that played into, you know, my, my struggles, even though I spoke perfect English, even though I, you know, um, was, was able to do well in school, um, a number of the behaviors that, you know, should have been caught and, and, you know, tested weren't right. And, and I wonder, you know, whether or not, um, my ethnicity played a role in that. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, but also because, um, there's less desire to seek those things out in our communities as well. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, it makes it so much more difficult for us to even, you know, question whether or not learning disabilities or, um, you know, mental health issues are a reason why a person isn't um, performing well or to their full potential, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm glad that our worth isn't just found in academics. <laughs> um, being a, a B honorable student most of my life, like, always wanting to get into the A honor roll, but like never getting there. Mm. <laughs> I think I made it once, but <laughs> I, I came to accept my identity as a B plus student. So, <laughs> but yeah, thank you for, for sharing your experience in that. And um, 
you know, Hannah, as, as far as uh, connecting with uh, our identities being ever, ever shifting, right? Um, for me, a, a big part of my understanding of identity formation um, is that our identities aren't developed in isolation, but they're developed in community, right? Yeah. And so, so much of our identity is formed and shaped not just by our personal passions and desires, but by the needs of our community around us. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so the ways in which we um, are, are encouraged, the ways we're affirmed in our gifts and our skills, the ways that we're lifted up, even in our weaknesses, right? Those are the, the moments in which our identities are really shaped and formed. And um, the, the reality is we, we move a lot. We move often and our communities change and shift. And I think that's also a, a big part in um, why we haven't made it, right? Because our stories aren't complete and we don't stick in one community for our entire lives. So, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, you know what suddenly came to mind? I think it was uh, the Amish community. They like when their young ones grow up to be like 18 or something, they let them out into the world to live like normal life with technology for a year. And then they get to decide if they'll come back to their home and their community and live like that lifestyle or if they'll be out there. Um, I think there was a book called Little Black Dress or something. I read years ago about that. Mm. Um, so I remember when I was reading, I was like, dude, why don't Asians do that? Because <laughs> in college, I, I was amazed at how many, um, and I, I met mostly, you know, East Asian, Southeast Asian, some, you know, uh, Pacific Islander um, friends, but a lot of us had sort of had this break from our immigrant communities as we finally were beginning to like individuate or find the individual identity where we were like, oh, oh my gosh, I might have values and goals that are very different and maybe not like approved of by my community that I come from, but I am seeking and building a community around those values, right? Mm -hmm. And so I met so many Korean girls in particular, and this was kind of like in the party scene, you know, in college, but like we'd be at like bars or parties or house parties and it'd be like, oh, all of us were dating non-Korean guys and non-Asian guys. And it was a big part of our identity, though. It was like, no, I'm not about that. Like, Asian guys mm-hmm. are like brothers, you know? Um, I'm more independent and free-spirited. And if I were to, to be with an Asian guy, then the expectations from my community, that would all come up. Like, it was just too much baggage for them. So I, I always thought, you know, it would be so neat if API families actually had this moment of, um, you know, like kind of like a rite of passage at some point to be like so who do you want to be you know who are you feeling called to be as you grow <laughs> older what are what are your goals and dreams and does it look very different from ours but no <laughs> like, oh, doctor businesswoman, <laughs> lawyer right if you're from a evangelical community pastor is acceptable mm-hmm. missionary but will worry about you because you'll be poor the rest of your life right. <laughs> You know, and if you're a girl, it's like, oh, please don't become a pastor's wife because you're going to suffer the rest of mm. your life. <laughs> and so if you, like, come out of that, it's like, oh, I'm really, really worried about my child. And, Rhea, you kind of referenced it, this idea of um, maybe security. I felt like that was a big, maybe unspoken word, but that's what came to mind. Because mm. for Koreans, success and security are actually, like, you know, t- together. This concept of anjang. And it involves um, marital status, education achievement, 
um, certain financial stability. And it's sort of this idea of like, you're not even an adult until you have all this stuff settled so that now you parents don't have to worry about you. You can take care of yourself and suddenly the roles reverse and they're like, well, now you pay my bills and you take care of me. <laughs> um, mm. yeah. And it's just kind of like, well, at, at what point do I just get to be like me? Right. Um, so a lot of the work with my clients who are largely, you know, Asian American Pacific Islander women, um, and, you know, mostly cisgender, it's a lot of struggling with identity because it's so painful to pull away from the expectations and approval of our families of origin, our churches, and to say like no to mom and dad or whoever brought us up, you know, uh, or to leave our churches that we grew up in, um, to move away. It's, it, it literally, it's not even just cutting apron strings. It's like cutting an umbilical cord that has a lot of nerves mm. attached to it. Um, and the presence of trauma, right? Or poverty, sort of uh, generations of poverty, generations of survival, that complicates it. Um, and I'm going to finish with this. I know I'm talking a lot here. <laughs> but I, I also got diagnosed with ADHD in college my first year. And it was just so clarifying and freeing for me. My parents had a very different reaction to it. And it was like, don't put a label on your area of growth, please. Like, we don't want to recognize mm. this this weakness or dis disorder is like a real thing that there's medication for. Like, why would you see yourself so negatively and give yourself a pronouncement? And I was like, no, this, this removes shame for me because number one, I'm not weird or I'm not a failure. There's other people like me. And two, there's treatment options. I could do something about it. Like I wouldn't have finished my, any of my educational degrees without lots and lots of help <laughs> from therapists and medication, right? Mm. Um, but now kind of, you know, having pulled back, um, I'm not on medication currently because I'm not in school and I'm working with clients who are working through, do I have a learning disability as an adult getting diagnosed? It's like, well, is it trauma or is it ADHD or is it both? Wow. Mm -hmm. Because trauma does a lot of the same things to the brain that ADHD does, right? So the hypervigilance where you're really, really sensitive and easily triggered, um, the, the lack of executive functioning, trauma brain also looks like that because mm -hmm. the amygdala is almost always on or easily turned on. Um, and so an anxiety, not wanting to focus on one thing because when you have trauma in your body, it's hard to sit still with that feeling. And so it's a lot easier to just constantly keep moving from one thing to another. And so I'm like, hey, you know, it's probably both. Um, and if we normalize that, um, and if we don't even call ADHD a learning disability, but we look at it as just like not being neurotypical or being neurodivergent, mm. and we can be culturally sensitive and trauma-informed about it, can it actually be something that we approach with so much empathy and grace and empowerment? Because I think there's gifts that come with having a learning disability or being differently abled. That's my long spiel. <laughs> Boom. Wow. <laughs> See you next episode. <laughs> just kidding. Yeah, we're, we're just going to chew on that for <laughs> <laughs> for a good day or two at this point. So one thing actually, um, you know, obviously respond how you want to, but I would love to hear at some point um, what we love about being API, what we celebrate, mm -hmm. you know, the best parts of being who we are, even though it's not been easy. Um, yeah, and what's what's been a gift to you or a blessing along the way? Mm -hmm. 
So I'll go. Um, well, first, like Hannah, when you were when you were talking about um, the idea of giving this rite of passage or this ability to choose for yourself. Um, yeah. Created a lot of tension in me. Okay, like I was like, "Whoa, <laughs> Hannah, slow down here. We don't, we don't push these boundaries." <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, no, I, I think there's a huge need for um, kind of this uh, idea of communitas. And and um, the last podcast that I was a part of. Uh, we actually talked about this experience of stepping out of our, our Hmong community and context in order to go and learn new ways of doing things in order to bring it back to the community and grow mm -hmm. the community. Um, and this is how, you know, communities grew um, when we we're talking about, you know, prior to, you know, all this technology and information being at the, you know, our fingertips, like, communities had to send out individuals to go and learn from the rest of the world in order to bring those things back and, yeah. and for that community to grow in those experiences. So um, I think that is definitely something that we have to, you know, really consider as AAPI, what, what does it look like for us to um, kind of leave our original context in order to grow, but also in order to help our, our communities grow when we return, if, if we ever do. Yeah. Um, but in addition to that, I think the thing that I love the most about Hmong culture um, is our food. Um, <laughs> and and I, I say that very biasly, um, but I, the reason why I love our food so much is because not just the food itself is amazing, but the way that we do food and and do meals is is really really communal and very very like everybody's hands-on everybody's a part of putting the meal together um there are some patriarchal pieces to uh, meal time that i don't enjoy so much um but uh, there are definitely pieces to how we do food that just really makes it like this is community. This is us all eating at once. This is us in this space working together to feed each other. Um, and my dad used to, so this is, this is my dad in his um, orphan mentality, but he used to teach me and my brothers, there were nine of us, um, my brothers and sisters. Um, so six boys, three girls. And my dad would teach us um, that uh, if we were ever in a stuck place, and all we had was like one piece of meat and a little bit of rice for, for all of us, that what we need to do is not just cook the meat and try to, um, try to you know, split it up as evenly as possible, um, but that it's our duty to find the best way to cook the, the meat in a way so that everybody can enjoy a full meal. Um, and so you would find a way to, to boil the meat and shred up the meat and then cook the rice and make it so that everybody was was full enough to continue the journey right um and 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 that's what i think i really enjoy about uh, my culture is that around the dinner table around meals and the food um, there's a sense of community that really develops um yeah what's your favorite meal mm. Ooh. 
I'm I'm gonna go with um, soccer tournament meal. Um, and so Hmong people have a huge soccer tournament that takes place um, usually on uh, July 4th weekend. Um, but because of the pandemic, it hasn't happened um, over the past two years. It won't happen this or over the past year, it won't happen this year either. Um, but millions flock to Minnesota um, and wow. land in St. Paul. And we host this three-day soccer tournament and other sports tournaments. Um, but at the soccer tournament, you get um, sticky rice. Um, you get a chicken thigh, some mung sausage, papaya salad, and a cup of, um, it's, I guess it's called tricolor in, in English, but navang, which is like tapioca, coconut milk, and, and um, simple syrup. Um, it's a dessert drink, but that kinda meal like there, hollow. yeah, kind of like hala hala. Mm -hmm. Um, it's, it's, it's that meal. Um, that's just like, you have everything that you need and it's like the perfect balance between everything. Mm -hmm. So, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. so if you ever get the chance to go to a soccer tournament or any Hmong tournament around you, go <laughs> and, and just awesome. order this little platter for yourself. Where can we find these? <laughs> now I, really I know. <laughs> I just had dinner and I'm still hungry now. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's awesome. George, you stole my answer. I was also going to say food. <laughs> yes. Hey, this is a food podcast now. <laughs> oh, um, yeah, but I think. But I also think um, one of my favorite parts about Indian culture at its best and at its healthiest, I think um, your community shows up for you. Um, mm. Whether it is, um, whether it is to grieve or to celebrate or just to anything in between, I think um, they show up for you. I think if there's um, a death of a loved one. You can be sure that you will have few people coming to your door with like Tupperwares mm -hmm. with food. Um, or if there's something to celebrate, like our WhatsApp group chats just like explode with, um, and I think, yeah. And I really, I think there's, um, at the end of the day, we'll be there for you mentality in many mm -hmm. of many communities. I'm not, I won't say everyone has that um, privilege, but at its best, I think that hospitality and um, mm -hmm. Yeah, um, it's very, it's reverse. Like I think in the US, what I've noticed is that people can be very nice and pleasant and open at like first, um, first meeting or first glance or with strangers, but then there's more distance, the more you get to know them. But I think it's the opposite, at least um, in India, or at least where I am from in India, which is the South and state of Kerala, where like, you see people, they're just really suspicious of you. They keep their distance. They're like very like, uh, I don't really know about you or where you're from or what you're about. Um, but when you, if you are invited to their house, right. Or if like, mm. once you get to know them deeper, um, just the hospitality and yeah, um, that generosity, that spirit of generosity is very apparent. And um, yeah, I'm really grateful for that because, for example, like my parents live on the other coast of this country um, and they're slowly getting older and I'm not, 
I'm worried, but I'm not too worried because I know they have a really good, strong community around them who will be there for them. Mm-hmm. Um, and part of that, I think, is also Im- immigrant mentality. Um, but that sort of, at the end of the day, we will have each other's back. I think that is what they've seen growing up in India as well. And so, mm. and that's also expressed through food, right? So like the food that they make for each other and what they used to celebrate and all of that. Um, mm-hmm. I think it's all interconnected. And so I really, I really love that part of my culture. Hey, um, so this is kind of a little tangent, but I, um, you know, my, my friends and I've been praying for India because on the news, the COVID surges, Mm-hmm. Um, so just wondering how that's sitting with you, Leah. Um, yeah. Yeah. I'm angry. Um, mm. It's just, it's, it's bad. Right. And I think the way the government's handled it um, and it's continuing to handle, it's just awful. Mm-hmm. And I also know that there were elections, like a lot of local elections that were happening. And so I'm convinced that it's, it wasn't like a rapid surge out of nowhere. I think they've been under reporting the numbers um, mm. or right. And I know there's just a lot more and so I'm just very pissed off really. And I, um, those are feelings we try to keep bottled in <laughs> for the most part because mm. it's one of those, like I'm, I've, I'm helpless for the most part, right. Other than mm. being able to spread awareness um, and donate and encourage others to, there isn't much I can I can't be there to ease suffering. Um, mm-hmm. And that's, that weighs on me. Thank you mm-hmm. for asking, Hannah. Yeah, yeah. I um, I had spent about, um, you know, six, seven weeks in India years ago. Um, and so when I heard about what's happening, I reached out to some friends in Gawa, which is, you know, quite different, their lifestyle there. They're doing okay. Um, but I, similar sentiment of like anger and frustration with the leadership and the corruption there. And sort of like, you know, they, they could have prepared better for this. Um, kind of like many of us felt here and, you know, our, our previous president. Um, but there's so many more people there and the, the class differences. And yeah, yeah. So, um, you yeah, know, a lot of us have been holding Indian prayer and, you know, sending donations to the orgs and people that we know. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, actually, you know, when I was, at, I was on a train um, from... I went Goa to Mumbai to Calcutta, and on the way, I um I met these young Indian women who were just so amazing, and you know, college educated, spoke English. But one gal and her fiance um, spoke with me the entire trip, um, and basically, when we got to Calcutta, she invited me to her home. She paid for the taxi fare. Her father cooked like a four course meal, and I was like, "Oh, your dad." That's cool. She gave me one of her like bridal outfits, like something she had received. And I was just like, oh my God, you're treating me like I'm your best friend in your bridal party. (laughs) I just met you like I think 24 hours ago. (laughs) And you're like bringing me into your home at 11 at night and I'm a complete stranger. And um, I was just so moved and touched. And I was just like, you'd never see this in the US. Mm -mm. And I really came home to the US realizing uh, I actually felt kind of poor coming to the U.S., right? This idea of, like, we got wealth and poverty, like that mentality of what true riches means so backwards. Mm-hmm. Um, and I felt safer in India physically, even though I looked like a North Indian. I think people thought I was, like, um, you know, like a, of that blood. Um, yeah, I, I felt safer there. I could walk up to a complete stranger. And the places I wear were very, like, urban, 
but like a like an older male and be like, Uncle, can you help me get to where and where? You would not do that in the States. <laughs> I don't know about the Midwest. You definitely don't do that here in LA. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm not your uncle. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Um, but that hospitality really um yeah, transformed me. Mm-hmm. Um, I'll just say with Korean culture, something that I've learned to really love is the strength um and the fierceness of people. I didn't know until I had studied a lot of immigration history and then um, focusing on Korean women in church history and missions history and seminary studying. Um, I wrote a paper on it. I like wept through a razor paper <laughs> that had never happened before, but realizing how strong women have been and it made me look again at what does strength mean? You know, in a Western context, strength can be interpreted a certain way. Um, but I, what I used to look down on as, oh, I'm so frustrated that Asians are so quiet and just long suffering and they never say anything. And a lot of us grew up with like, that's just how we are, the model minority, and that's how we have to be. Mm. And that did not fit with who I was. Um, but realizing like, oh no, we just use our strength differently. We're very strategic. We, we do things together. We know how to suffer and sacrifice and submit, but we also know how to fight back and rebel and organize ourselves and enact change, you know? Um, so yeah, strength is something I love in the Korean culture. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. I feel like we can do a whole another episode just on <laughs> processing through, you know, the things that um, really make us who we are. And, you know, kind of like uh, what we were talking about, even just with identity, like, um, so much of our identity formation also affects our our mental health, and and you know I think early on in our conversation we we hit on a number of um, issues growing up that that really challenged um, our identity as well as put us in in you know pretty desperate spaces of mental health, um, and so I'm just wondering you know currently. Uh, with where you are at with, uh, you know, your personal identity and, and, you know, mental health things that are coming up for you, what, what is it like maybe looking for, um, you know, support and, and, um, you know, if you feel comfortable with sharing, um, what, what, what does it look like for you in, in searching for support and, and what is taking care of your mental health looks like maybe even in your cultural context? Yeah. Leah, go first. Um, I'm really excited about this conversation because I'm brand new to this in many ways. Um, I recently, um, I had suspicions, but I I recently was uh, diagnosed with anxiety and depression. Um, I knew about my depression. I I had a feeling, but um, the anxiety was new and it actually just made a lot of sense. Last year, I just in like a span of four months, I had a I had a series of pretty traumatic events happen back to back, and that just completely affected my uh, mental health. Um, and so it was the first time I um, got a therapist um, that mm. sort of helped me identify those things, um, especially the anxiety part. I didn't realize that a lot of what I was doing and thinking and feeling were actually bad and just like just symptoms of that something's not right um 
And, and so I'm, I'm, part of me is really excited because it's, it's really helping me connect a lot of dots that I just did not realize needed to be connected in terms of as I'm working through a lot of childhood stuff um, as well. Um, and so I'm, yeah, so now, now I'm, I'm in my journey of trying to find another therapist who's a better fit for me and what I'm looking for and can help me address the things that I need to be addressed. Um, it is something that I knew, thankfully, that like once I found a therapist and once we were um, being able to identify these things that I had to start, um, I just had to tell my trusted people about this. Like I was like, hey, by the way, I'm going to therapy. Um, she told me that I probably have anxiety and all of this, um, mostly because I did not want to fall into the trap of having this be a shameful thing and it just mm. being my little secret, like don't tell people that you're affecting because mm. in um, my Indian circles, a lot of times mental health and um, a lot of those things, it can be seen as a weakness, but a defect in um, mm. your character or your worth or your personhood. Um, there, there's a lot of shame and I, I wanted to dispel that. Um, and so at least to my trusted circles of people and friends, as I just, even just to get in the habit of like just practicing saying those words. So it doesn't feel mm -hmm. hard when, um, if, and when I do have to have hard conversations. And so, mm -hmm. um, yeah, I am, I am it's very new. I'm still learning more about this myself and, um, how it manifests and how to, yeah, just the emotional regulation part of, of all that and everything. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Thank you for sharing. Mm -hmm. Hey, uh, George, <laughs> I'm going to ask you a question. You don't have to answer, but, um, you know, we're all twos on the Enneagram. <laughs> I also have struggled with anxiety, depression, um, probably since a lot younger than I, you know, care to remember. Um, but I, I've often wondered if it comes hand in hand with having ADHD as well as being a certain personality type. So George, mm. do you also have any, does any of this resonate with you? Cause I know for sure ADHD, anxiety, depression, those are like my big three that I am constantly managing. Um, yeah. 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 Um, yeah, I'm definitely, definitely a two, but my, the seven in me wants to say no, like, <laughs> <laughs> that, mm -mm. I don't I don't struggle with anything there are no limits no bounds just no nope, we're just gonna push through and we want to do, do. Um, oh goodness yeah no there's so much um, with anxiety and depression that that comes up with you know especially the ADHD um, and and a lot of it comes out of performance-based anxiety um, and and for an individual who struggles with ADHD, the biggest um, fear that they often have is um, fear of rejection or fear of disappointment, right? Um, <laughs> and now, you know, now it just sounds like I'm talking about all Asians, but... Yeah, <laughs> no, really, really. Um, but yeah. there's a space in which we fear so much that if we don't have something good to show, Mm -hmm. that we can't show anything at all mm -hmm. and that's when we fall into our procrastination cycles that's when we fall into 
pits of despair and and just anxiety around whether or not this is good enough, whether or not it means I'm good enough. Um, and, you know, God bless my wife. She's walked me through a number of seasons of anxiety and depression and just feeling stuck. And as though like, this is never going to happen. I'm never going to be who I need to be. And she's just been there like, you're going to be okay. She's a six. So she's a great loyalist. And she's just like, no, you need to, you need to believe in yourself. You have all the gifts and the tools that you need. And I'm just like, yeah, super thankful to be blessed with such an amazing life. Um, But definitely uh, lots of anxiety and depression as well to, to have to process through. Yeah. Yeah. So I, you know, working with largely API um, young adults, um, I, I feel like it's such a common thing to see intergenerational trauma, anxiety, especially around boundaries and individuating or just trying not to be so enmeshed with the family and then depression when they do experience that rejection, right? Of like, why did you do this? Why didn't you do this? I disown you or you're not good enough somehow. Um, that it's almost like when I meet someone who doesn't have anxiety, depression and trauma and they're a child of immigrants, I'm like, really? <laughs> Tell me more. <laughs> You're a unicorn. <laughs> you know, um, yeah, I feel like it's just so, it's such a common experience for many of us. And, um, you know, something with especially Korean American that I've talked about a lot um, is actually suicidal ideation. Um, and so we, you know, warning earlier but you know especially with koreans like i think south korea is known for one of the highest suicide rates and then um it's actually with academic performance korea and japan both right you get stories of students not passing certain exams to go into college and then they take their life um and it's just so gut-wrenching and heart-wrenching and then for us to learn that you know right now right suicide is the leading cause of death for um, aapi young adults um, mm. that was like, oh my God, I, I knew it was up there, but I didn't realize it was like number one, you know, especially because the pandemic, racial violence. Um, so it's something we talk about a lot to destigmatize, also to normalize, not to mm. say it's like okay, good or, you know, normal, you know, like easy, but to say like, Hey, you're not alone. A lot of us have these thoughts of, I don't want to be alive anymore or living is too hard or nobody would care if I just disappeared. Like those are thoughts that I I wish there are more safe spaces where we could just say that we feel that way. Um, And for people to kind of know what we're talking about, but also for there to be people that are like, okay, well, I hear you and you're not alone, but I also want to make sure that when you, when that thought starts to really persist um, or when it gets really scary right? And, and you're not mm. happy with how often that thought and feeling is there. Do you know who you need to call, where to go, right? To find the right steps um, to get help. Uh, yeah. 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 And it's, it, it's so difficult because oftentimes when we're in those spaces, we've already allowed ourselves to become so isolated that it's so difficult to hear other people's voices and um, find comfort and, and believe that someone else would even care to to look at us, right? Or even um, want to hold us, right? Or embrace us in our in our despair because we've already rejected ourselves so much, right? Yeah. 
Um, and this is, I, th I think, to the importance of community um, and, and not just, you know, any community, but like real intentional and intimate community where we're known by people so that um, we don't allow ourselves to get so far off in isolation, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, I often tell all of my clients um, that uh, we, we weren't meant to do life in isolation. We were meant to do life mm -hmm. in relationships. Mm -hmm. And, and even, even though we may be hurt in relationships, that the, the hope is we're also healed in relationships. Um, and so, you know, as we're talking about how our context maybe put certain pressures on us, um, how we might find ourselves being told by others or telling ourselves that we're not worth it because we're not meeting certain standards that the world places on us, right? Um, that our worth isn't really found in those things, but it's found in um, who we are and, and who the people who love us remind us who we are. Right. Um, and so there's there's a need for, um, yeah, that that intimate uh, community. Um, but also, like you were saying, Hannah, that when you can't find that, that there are other resources out there and available mm -hmm. for you to be reminded of your humanity, to be reminded of who you are and, and, and what's great about you and why you need to um, uh, continue to exist and, and live out who you're supposed to be. Yeah, George, I kept waiting for you to actually be like, your value and worth isn't found in this. It's found in Jesus Christ, our Lord. <laughs> Just waiting. <laughs> I could go there. around it so nicely. <laughs> no, but really, um, I think a surprisingly high number of people who have uh, faith, religion, and spirituality still right. struggle with mental health issues because even in the church, mental health has been stigmatized. Mm -hmm. And it's so cool and great to go to your pastor, your priest, you know, whoever it is. Um, but some people just need more and that that's so okay. You know, and medication mm -hmm. is okay. And whatever helps you get better and feel better and, and live a fuller life. Right. Um, that needs to be okay. That has to be okay. Yeah. Leah, did you have any thoughts? Um, I'm just writing notes of all the things you guys are saying right now. <laughs> Uh, no, but thank you for the words that you guys are sharing. It's, it's, I'm, yeah, it's really affirming and, um, and healing to hear those things from both of you personal on a personal level. So thank you for the wisdom and for creating the spaces for this conversation. Mm. Uh, um, I'm curious, um, for those who might, um, want help but have never reached out before but and might not know where to go where to start what would you both recommend how could they start to look um and what specifically should they be looking for george you have any thoughts yeah um just very quick if uh, you and your family are privileged to have uh health insurance mm -hmm. call your health insurance providers um, and ask them what your behavioral health insurance looks like mm -hmm. and um, ask them for either a list or access to the portal that would provide you a list of providers within your network. Mm -hmm. um, that's the fastest and easiest way to get in with a therapist who you won't have to deal with all the insurance issues around. Mm -hmm. um, 
and and uh, hopefully in that space you can also ask for certain identifiers that you would like your therapist to have mm -hmm. and your portal through your insurance should be able to filter through um, a lot of those um, those uh, identifiers to find someone specific that you're looking for. Yeah. I'm going to add during the pandemic, a lot of people haven't updated that they're, they're not taking new clients. So um, my supervisor is awesome. She's like, make the insurance people work for the client. So the client mm -hmm. is absolutely allowed to say, I only want people who are taking new clients currently that you verified um, as mm -hmm. well as, you know, if, if they've already gotten the list and like, Oh, they're taking new clients. You call all five and they're not to be like, can you please help me find out exactly who is in my area meets these qualifications and they are taking new clients because I don't have time and energy. I'm not well enough to be calling 20 other people. Like you need to do the work for me. Right. Um, yeah. Um, for Asian American Pacific Islanders in particular um, on Facebook, actually, that's a really great place. There's these spaces that are very mental health um, destigmatizing. So we specifically come and talk about all things mental health with other Asian American Pacific Islanders. So like Asian Mental Health Collective, therapists and people looking for therapists, or just people talking about things openly gather there. Um, there's, uh, I think, APIDA or someone does. There's a couple of Asian American Pacific Islander therapist directories. I know specifically that there's um, a group of Asian American Christian therapists online and we'll kind of refer to each other, um, asking friends who are in therapy, like, hey, do you like your therapist? Could your therapist connect me with one of their friends or could I see your therapist too? I've totally mm -hmm. done that it's early in my journey. Um, and then uh, Psychology Today. I love Psychology Today. Um, I, I think it's quick. You can put what kind of therapy you want, um, the demographics of who they serve. Like if you're a, a, a queer Filipina, like you can kind of, you know, mark some of those boxes. If you know you want to do a certain kind of therapy, YouTube is a great resource as well. But Psychology Today will also help you filter out with your, which insurances they take to. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, one more question. How does someone know if they're a good fit with their therapist or counselor? If they're worth the money you're paying them, girlfriend. <laughs> I mean, I will say community mental health, like the ones that your insurance, um, especially if you have like Medi-Cal, might cover. Um, not as um, maybe mm, like long-term. They do a lot of crisis sort of stuff. But if you're willing to put in an investment of like 100 and up, you can ask for sliding scale if you have a kind of lower income situation. Um, but generally, um, you know, private pay, private practice, um, therapists, it, it's, there's a lot of freedom there. Um, but if you're, you know, it's like a car payment, right? It, you're investing in your mental health for the rest of your life. Mm -hmm. So, you know, expect anywhere from like a 400 to $700 investment a month. Um, or you can go biweekly to bring that down a bit. Um, but yeah, if you feel that that person is worth it after like six, seven meetings, if you feel safe, you can say whatever you need to without fear of judgment, but you know, they'll be honest with you and challenge you. And if you feel like you're getting something out of your time and your money, um, and hopefully a good therapist, if they don't feel like you're a good fit for them as a client, will be upfront with you and be like, I don't want to waste your time and money, but I don't feel like we're progressing towards your goal. Or they'll say, usually they'll say, do you feel like you're happy with how we're progressing towards your goals, right? Um, but clients are consumers, right? It's it's mm -hmm. your time. So um, shop, you know, shop for the best therapist you can, just like you would for a house or a car. It's a huge investment, but it could be life-changing. 
Yeah. Yeah, I ditto that. And, you know, it is, it is really um, a hard space because yes, it, it looks like a really big investment to be making. Um, but you, it, it's you, right? It's, it's your, your life. It's your ability to enjoy it. Right. And it's something that really ought to matter to you. And so, um, you know, if, if you find that you aren't a good fit with that, that counselor, that's totally okay. Let your counselor know because mm-hmm. they're not going to have their feelings hurt. And if they are, they can deal with it with their supervisor. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, you, you're looking for someone who's going to be able to understand you and, and make you feel safe so that you can process through all your work. Mm-hmm. Um, and so um, feel free to shop around and, and allow yourself to, to really um, find the right person who's going to, to help you process through um, a lot of your, your work that you need to do. So, yeah. yeah. Great questions. Yeah. No, these are good feedback, especially as I'm looking for someone who's a good fit for me. Like, yeah. I also wish I had heard these words when I was first looking. Um, mm-hmm. So uh, this is really valuable information for people. Yeah. Who might be yeah. One other thing that I'm just going to add on really quick, and then we got to wrap it up here, um, is uh, you may not find the perfect person mm-hmm, to be mm-hmm. your therapist. So don't don't go looking for, I mean, you might find the perfect person, but mm-hmm. don't set your heart on finding the perfect therapist. Um, if it's if it's needed, your therapist will grow with you and, mm-hmm. and will, will do the work that they need to to meet you where you're at. Um, mm-hmm. That's really, you know, good that a good worth therapist right there is someone yeah. who's willing to, to do the work that they need to, to get to where you are. Yeah. Um, yeah. But don't allow that to also be an obstacle for you to say, Oh, I'm never going to find the perfect therapist. So there's no point in me looking for therapy. Right. Um, right. Start somewhere, get some mm-hmm. work done and then you can continue to move. Kind of like dating, but not <laughs> yeah. like don't expect Mr. or Miss perfect, but you know, <laughs> Don't also like settle for someone you're not happy with. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, this is a wonderful conversation. Um, and, and I'm so thankful to, to have had it with um, both of you. And uh, we'll link some of those uh, resources in the show notes and uh, make sure that if you guys have questions about uh, mental health, how to pursue um, finding a therapist or anything else like that, please uh, fill in the comments, send us an email. We want to know how you're processing through these things as well. Um, and we're just really thankful that uh, you're here with us and joining in the discussion. So uh, until our next episode, take care of yourselves and we'll see you in, um, yeah, in a few weeks, I guess. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Erasing Shame podcast. Check out our website at erasingshame.com. We would love to hear your comments and questions. Please subscribe on any podcast app like Apple, Google, Spotify, or on Facebook and YouTube. And please add a rating, a review, and a share so more people can experience the freedom and healing that comes from erasing shame.